0: Welcome back to another episode of Occupy Interview Radio. Today's episode is going to be on prisons and political prisoners. Our guest is going to be David Somerville. He's a retired Army Special Forces uh, veteran, and uh, he's had some interesting experiences with uh, the prisons and the prison industrial complex. Dave, why don't you say hello to us? Hello. (laughs) Hello to us. (laughs) All right, he's still with us. Uh, anybody want to start off with some questions or you know david actually why don't you start off to tell us a little about yourself uh you know what my question was uh first question is what woke you up what woke you up that you know your government is lying to you
1: oh well that was my military service back in uh 78 79 80 81 and that's what really woke me up i you know was raised in michigan just believed that the government was all good but got into military and found out the government's not all good the government's pretty much corrupt and um you know, that just uh, had a devastating impact on me from then on here in life so i am can suspicious I get a more sp-
0: david can i get a little more specific with you because i recall from our conversation yesterday that you said that there was a lot of guys from coming home from Vietnam when you got into the service, and that you was the guys that made it through Nam were the guys that were training you. But yep. I guess my question is, did they volunteer to you how things were so screwed up, or was it just so apparent oh, everywhere around you?
1: Oh, sure, they did. Sure, I, I mean this was uh, uh, around the time uh, when they were running the the drugs into Mena, Arkansas, and they would uh, tell me. You know, they're the ones, you know, who who fly the you know, the C one thirties or one forties or one forty ones that they were flying at the time. Um, you know, that they were they were the ones, you know. I mean, it was it was the government, it was the CIA that was running those drugs into Arkansas, and, and they laughed and they thought it was funny because you know the media at the time, I guess, was talking up you know trash about all you know all the how the drugs are all coming into Miami and Florida, and they so, said you know this is the the big lie. That's being put out there. You know, we 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 are really running the drugs into you know Arkansas, and so that was you know was when I just realized that geez, you know this is this is what you guys do, and this is this is what's been going on, and seeing how they conduct themselves out in you know and training exercises they make you know that they they make useful idiots out of uh, of Americans I mean, we we go on you know field exercises uh and, and go into areas because we were in the intelligence part of the uh, activities and so they would uh you know go into bars and stuff and you know and start uh, screwing with people and just messing with them and uh you know try to get them to to do stuff like uh We'll try to get the, you know, it was like it was like a game, it, you know, it's just kind of like a mission to try to get somebody, a, a, an unknowing stooge, to take something from here to there and deliver it to some other person they don't know, um, you know, to just do unwitting, stupid things and, you know, to try to, you know, corrupt, you know, women, you know, co-op them, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend type of things, whatever. I mean, schmooze them, you know, anybody, get any stooge to do something. You know, this was this was just part of part of what was going on is how to how to make useful idiots out of people who wouldn't know any better, and Did uh, yeah.
0: Did you ever see any drugs?
1: No, no, I was I you know totally stayed away from any of that, and as far as uh you know, I I I, ha- I would say I would have to take their word for it, you know, that that's what they were doing for for some time, but I have no reason to doubt it. You know, at, the, can, at the at the I level. I can tell that you that. Had,
0: I can, no, excuse me, I'm sorry, I can tell you that, you know, uh, back during the first Iraq-Gulf War, that, uh, my college roommate was getting, um, hash straight from Afghanistan right into, uh, an Air Force base in Dayton, Ohio. And, uh, we, I saw it come right off the plane, uh, you know, the guy coming out of the airport, and it even had a Delta, uh, logo on this, on the package. What do you think <laughs> about that? that's what I was curious, if you ever just kind of, you know, came across it, not like, you know, you were part of it or anything, but, you know, just happened to oversee something getting shipped or whatever.
1: Nope. No, I tried to avoid all that. I, I, I was really a really clean cut, and I was really just, you know, a true believer in, you know, law and order and all that stuff. And, you know, you just, you know, would never have anything to do with stuff like that.
0: Why did you join the service in the first place? I mean, was it like economics, or did you, was there some sort of patriotic feeling you had?
1: What it was, was a little patriotic feeling, a little little bit of that. You know, I, I think I was a useful idiot. But at the same time, um, you know, there was some economics involved. You know, they were advertising at that time you know, that you could earn, like, $8,000 for college, which of, uh, and I forget what they called that program now. But uh, basically, you know, I, I contribute, like, you know, whatever half of that money, from my paycheck, Oh, right. the
0: college fund, the GI Payche- fund, right? I'm sorry? The GI fund, is that what you're talking about? Yes. It was something like that. It was Part of the GI stuff. bill, I believe, isn't it? The GI bill, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was a real early on
1: precursor to some of that stuff. One of the first programs they offered like that, and I, I forget what they called it now, but, yeah, that was it. And, of course, $8,000 for college then. I mean, you know, I contributed, you know, like, say, half of that, and they, they matched it. And so... You know that was a lot of money for college then. Now that's not even a drop. In right. the book. Yeah. But
0: yeah. okay, Terry, or, uh, did you have a question Do you want uh, for our guest, or did you want me to keep I, going here for a little bit?
2: I was just going to say it. It's uh, it's not just what he was hearing. There seems to be quite a bit of documentation about the uh, about the uh, that came out during the Iran Contra hearings. Uh, uh, later, the uh, the series that came out by uh, the journalist who supposedly after his career was wrecked uh, was supposed to have committed suicide by regrettably shooting himself in the head twice, according to what the coroner signed off on. Uh, Anyway, there seems to be quite a bit of documentation that what he was hearing was what was actually going on. I was uh, just uh, curious, after you got back out and... uh, I know you were a part of our uh, Occupy America site, and how did you uh, how did you become part of the Occupy movement? Occupy supporter.
1: Well, I'm pretty sympathetic to the to the 99 of us who are being abused by the gangster bankers. So, you know, I'm I'm pretty much into uh, any popular move movement that's going to hold uh, the criminals and government accountable. And, and really, you know, when they went to uh, New York, you know, basically to the, you know, to uh, the Wall Street type of, uh, of a protest, you know, that's where the real criminals are. I mean, those are the folks who are really buying off the rest of government, the ones who really own government. We're looking at, you know, the J.P. Morgans and the Rockefellers, and these folks are are the ones who are really, uh, you know, running everything, pulling the strings behind the scenes. I mean, I, I know there's a whole bunch more of them than, than just those, but... You know, when they went there to really go after that, I was really pleased with that, to see somebody finally going after the real enemy and not playing this left-right, liberal, conservative, ping-pong ball kind of goofball charade. You know, finally somebody's going after the real enemy. So I like that. Uh, that's what drew me in.
0: Hey, guys, uh, let me jump in here for a second. Uh, do you hear me? Yeah. Okay, uh Bradley, can you check our stream, please? Uh, one of our listeners tonight said that we're not getting a stream, uh, so we'll work on that, guys. Hey, okay, Parklar, did you want to jump in there?
3: Uh, well, no, I didn't really have anything at the moment. Uh, I would okay. say though that uh, uh, you know certainly the drug running does tie into the uh, the whole Occupy thing, since uh, they, they've had so much of. Uh, uh, Exposure on uh, what the banks have been doing with laundering drug money, and you know, to the tune of tens of billions uh, every year. And uh, you know, it, it's a uh, it, it's a real shame that this you know this stuff is uh, never prosecuted because it encourages them to keep doing it. When you uh, find them, you know, say ten or fifteen million dollars for. You know, and say, shame, shame, give them a little slap on the wrist for, uh, you know, laundering all this drug money. Um, Well, you know, businesses have what they call risk management. Risk management is essentially where they take a look at uh, uh, what risk do they uh, take on in breaking the law. And when they see that the risk of, uh, laundering tens of billions and making hundreds of millions of dollars off of it and weigh that versus, uh, you know, a few million in fines, then the answer is, uh, well, get the, get the Mexican cartels on the phone. Let's, let's do some business, you know?
2: I'd like to elaborate on that just a tiny bit, the, uh. Anybody ever gets a chance, you can look up the Opium Wars. Uh, it's a this is a something that's been going on for well, the Opium Wars would be Great Britain. I think we got a piece of that. I'm doing this off the top of my head, and we'll try to put a link up for it. Uh, but the the big money has been making this has been part of their supply line for years now, or su- coming up on centuries now. Uh,
3: yeah, there's a lot of a lot of the opium war uh, kind of uh, kind of continued with the Vietnam era as
0: well. Yeah. Yep. Okay, let's proceed to uh, figure out how it is that our guest ended up a guest of the federal law enforcement system. <laughs> right. So, really, jump in there. You know, uh, you find yourself out of the service, disillusioned with the whole world, with the government, with the military. Your whole world's upside down. Where are we at then? Well, then I'm going back to college.
1: I, I uh you know, I tried to make use of that money. I got a bachelor's degree in data processing and uh started doing computer consulting, writing software. Uh I was a systems analyst and <clears throat> then I traveled around the country some, did uh work for various various groups, some of them were uh, government contractors, some of them was directly working for government. Um yeah, I did that for a number of years, and I got married, and I had a nice place out in Arizona for a while. and Ultimately, I ended up coming back to uh, Michigan, settling down up in the upper portion of Michigan and uh, running into um, a neighbor who was uh, uh, affiliated with the Michigan militia, and uh, that's where things kind of started to, uh, to fray a little bit. Um, I decided I was going to try to open a... A store here in Michigan, a military surplus store actually with my cousin who was a big fanatic of that kind of thing. And uh, we were going to try to open that around Brighton. It's a town kind of downstate. and um, But they wanted a lot of rent. There's a really expensive district down there that we're going to open up and they wanted just huge rent for a storefront. So uh, I had a whole lot of inventory for this store and didn 't really i couldn 't really afford all the other upfront expense I mean the startup cost was getting big, so decided to hold the inventory and maybe open in a smaller place like uh, up upstate, uh around a place like calcasska or mancelona which you 'd have to look on the map with a magnifying glass to find it and um, you know some some low rent place just out of the way and just kind of you know live a relatively quiet obscure life anyways um the militia guys, uh, you know, kind of tapped me, and uh, then 9-11 happened, and that was, uh, you know, kind of all happened all together. And with uh, 9-11 happening, uh, you know, I recognized in those buildings falling down that uh, that wasn't, you know, the result of a fire in a steel structure and the whole structure just failed and collapsed. That's just not a story anybody Anybody sensible would believe, again, I was in the military, we did demolition there. And so, you know, I know what it takes to cut steel and, you know, bring down bridges and things. So I, so I know we're not, you know, we weren't, we weren't looking at uh, a building that just failed because I threw some gasoline on some steel girders on a bridge. Cause that doesn't work. Okay. That's just simply a lie. And so I'm not going to buy that story. And so uh being a thinking, intelligent person and realizing that's not how the world works and not being willing to eat the lies because I was part of the branch of the service that would generate, create and disperse those lies to what was supposedly the enemy, but again the enemy has turned into the American people. And so now, you know, I see that, you know, now that I'm in the in the civilian world that I am now the enemy of of those people who I used to work with on the inside, and, and, and recognizing all this, I realized the government's declaring war on the people with, with those murders that they committed in New York. And particularly when you look at Building 7 that fell down, they announced it fell before it even fell, and then it fell the same way as the other buildings, and it didn't even hit by anything. You know, these kind of things are signs that we're in a terrible, terrible way. And so I didn't have a whole lot of compunction about being co opted by the militia at that point in time because I felt like we were in a pretty desperate situation. Unfortunately that some of the people from the militia who came to work with me are probably not genuine and sincere in their beliefs might well have even been informant types infiltrated right off the get go. But um well no, that's how life happens. And uh so we so uh so that's that's where I ended up um Involved in the Michigan militia, and um, of course I had the big surplus the military surplus inventory, and uh, that was very attractive to the militia people and so um, so they set up a a, a camp at uh, my farm up in uh, up in the upstate in Michigan and um, from there, it went to uh, building guns, uh, building uh, machine guns, and, um, you know, some various training type of things there. Uh, not a not a whole lot, but uh, some. And a lot of people came there and stayed and camped there, um, met a lot of people in the militia. And, um, ultimately, there was a, 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 a situation with someone named Scott Woodring, another militia person up there. In, uh, in Newaygo County, which happened in July of 2003, which was not very far from me at all, um, and that led to uh, Scott Woodring's death. And of course, there's you know the, the government story on that, and then the truth that all the people who live there know, which is that when the police came to serve some bogus warrant on Scott Woodring, uh, they You know, came in with uh, their SWAT team to get a militia guy, and they ended up shooting two of their own people in the back. Sad but true. You know, it's their own screw up. It's it's their own you know bloodthirsty, trigger happy kind of approach to things, and they just shot their own people. You know, it breaks my heart, but it happened. But they did not have the um, you know the integrity. Uh, to stand up and say this is what happened instead they wanted to blame it on the militia guy because you know the state police cannot possibly look like the retards and morons and you know bloodthirsty killers that they really are that that they have as a reputation here in Michigan and so as a result uh, they had to uh i guess you would say hunt down Scott Woodring and murder him because he was the only real you know first hand witness to what really happened and so they shot him in the back about 20 times when he surrendered some days later, and then they made a big charade of uh, blowing up his house. There's a video of that on the Internet where they, you know, just burnt his house down. There was video even of them flying attack helicopters, like covert-type attack helicopters, and machine-gunning his house from the air. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I went to his house after it was just butchered and slaughtered by the, by the government to cover up the evidence, you know, to get rid of all the forensics, you know, to get rid of the evidence that the police shot them, shot their own people in the back. You know, that's the only reason crime scenes ever disappear is when it's a government crime. That's when the crime scenes get destroyed. Otherwise, you'd think they'd be there to preserve the crime scene and want to go in with all their forensics and prove this bullet and that bullet actually shot somebody. nope, and they don't want to see any of that and it's all going to be destroyed, and it'll just be our story versus yours and and you're the dead guy, so you aren't going to answer back and That's what they did to Scott Woodring, so there was some um some story that was perpetrated out there that that machine guns that were uh uh, that the militia had created it there on my farm were somehow going to be used for revenge on the police, which was just crap. It was just a wild story, but that got floated in the media. It was some wild story that, um, let's see, that there was going to be some ambush of the police on some highways or something, and that's a wild story, just garbage. I think at one point there was a discussion as regards uh how do the people uh deal with government a bloodthirsty government attack like like we witnessed you know on the tv news which i don't think really circulated too widely beyond the local area there where where you saw the government you know machine gunning this person's house from the air where you saw them you know with with apcs around that you know and then just surrounded by people and just you know shooting this house up like crazy um, you know, you wonder what do you do when the police are engaging in a, you know, what what appears to be just a straight-out massacre of somebody and their family, you know, and their home. What do you do to stop that? And so, you know, in, 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 a, in a rather short discussion, I said, well, you know, as a matter of military tactics, you know, and myself having been in the military and, you know, tactics discussions were up you know you create a distraction you create a diversion you know you try to get these people drawn away from there you get you know you make trouble for them elsewhere if you can't deal with them straight at that point where they are you know concentrated then you do other things and so that led to some wild story that there was some plot to uh you know to kill police or something and then there was some some other stories floated about you know that somebody was just going to go aimlessly attack the police or something and i think that all this stuff was informant garbage. That I think, I think ultimately, the all uh, well, the government realized that was lies, and they knew it. I think they knew it right from the get go. But it was a great story to feed to the media and helps vilify people who are, as they say, anti-government. And 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 it gives them, you know, what what looks like some righteous cause to come and attack somebody and grab them. And, you know, that's what they did at my farm, basically. They wanted to come and attack me and grab me and then seize, you know, whatever they could seize then. And so they told a lot of wild stories, like, you know, there was anti-aircraft guns and there was, you know, God knows, I don't know what, there are 50,000 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition there and uh, t- unbelievable landmines and just unbelievable stuff, I mean. The list of stuff that they alleged was there, which, I mean, it was stuff that any rational thinking person would know, this is, this is such a, a fantastic story, nobody's going to believe it, yet they, the ATF guys were, were, were just eating this up because they don't care what, what tales an informant will tell. They love it when an informant will show up and tell any lie that they know is a lie And the ATF, I think, later admitted they, you know, they pretty much knew this was just a fantastic lie. But it was great for feeding to the media. And ultimately, uh, after they abducted me and grabbed my stuff, what they, what they ultimately ended up with was, uh, possession of machine guns without their federal permits. And, um, you know, again, they, they want to float, you know, the most salacious tales, but ultimately when, when you get you know, settled through all the BS. The as as time went on, you know, they, they they weren't quite so brave to say any of that other stuff anymore. All that stuff sort of disappeared. The whole thing kind of just settled into the dust, and uh, it was you know possession of machine guns. And like Rachel Maddow says there on on TV, I think she was out uh, screaming about me, as as other liberal leftist commentators have done in the media. They will scream, "Oh." You know, he was in possession of machine guns,
0: okay, and? All right. Terry, uh, why don't you jump in here? I'm sure you've got a lot to say on, on what our guests have said so far.
2: Yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of, from a historic point of view, uh, George Washington was head of the Virginia militia. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, when he was governor of Virginia, second governor of Virginia, uh, was head of their militia i would assume he was their chief executive officer abraham lincoln militia uh daniel boone colonel what the the first kentucky colonel militia uh, and that list goes on and on and on and on so did you ever pick up any indication of Of uh, how they've managed to come up with the demonization of something that, as I recall, the Second Amendment of the Constitution says, and and I hope I don't mess this up, but a well-ordered militia being a desirable part of society, it is the right of the government to keep; uh, it is the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Uh, How did, did any of the guys that you were working with, aside from the ones that were dropping a dime on you for the court proceedings? Did any of them have any kind of a feeling about just how this demonization? uh, What were your feelings about that in real time?
1: Well, in real time, I I did what I could uh, to try to defend uh, against this, but they pretty much hold you hostage and incommunicado to some degree. I mean, they they controlled my communications in large part to, to going through one of their you know top informants, so pretty much anything I was seeking in terms of help uh went through their informants, so they knew exactly what I was trying to deal with so that was always a you know the informant was always the obstruction and then uh, of course they gave me a, a you know one of these phony uh government appointed attorneys as well, and so i you know I'm not really being versed in the law at that point i I did later while I was uh abducted uh, take a paralegal course, and now I have a paralegal's diploma. So I did a lot of litigating against them after I figured out what was up and how to deal with them. But initially, they pretty much did everything they could to shut me down. And so a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed was something I may well have brought up in court, but the judge was unwilling to hear that. The judge pretty much just uh, you know, blew all that off. And I even had some documentation that I was lucky enough to get from my sister-in-law. I think she actually mailed it directly to the judge on my behalf, which, which talked about this collective rights theory stuff that they put out, which came out in uh, just post-Miller, the, the 1939 Supreme Court Miller case, um, which actually wasn't a, a regular case. It was just kind of an opinion. And, uh, at that time, Miller said that military arms were what was protected by, um, the Second Amendment and that a sawed-off shotgun was not standard military armament and so thus it was not protected by, uh, by the Second Amendment and so when you have, uh, you know, a BATF regulation or a, or a, uh, a congressional, you know, edict to dictate, uh, statute they call it, I think, uh, that says that sawed-off shotguns need to be, uh, registered under their, uh, Firearms Act, um, under the NFA. I think it was 1938. They enacted that. They said, well, the Supreme Court said, well, that's okay. They can do that because a sawed-off shotgun is, is not, as far as they know, part of the standard military arms. Of course, if you, if you carry that forward to today, uh, I think even Ron Paul has put out some material. And I was looking around for that article. I was hoping to scan it and send it. But I think it, he wrote that in one of his articles uh, as, as a congressman here, and, and he still is in Congress, uh, that M-16s would be the standard military arm of today, which, of course, is, is a machine gun. And that would be a standard arm. And so that would certainly show that the... Uh, uh, the prohibitions against machine guns uh 18 USC 922 O sub 1 are really violations of the second amendment so the uh you know this this whole issue about uh you know the the machine guns and and the law um, you know ba- basically we're looking at the second amendment just being thrown in the garbage and they, they created this fraud that they called Collective Rights Theory back in about 1941. And I did actually document all this, the progression of this, in a, in a book I called Unmistakable Tyranny, which I should probably find a link for. And I really need to update it for uh, the D.C.V. Heller case. It's been on my list of things to do. But it's, uh, basically it basically shows the progression of all the court cases that, that twisted the Second Amendment into, into something that was not an individual right and so when I came into my case and I brought this up, well, the court's not willing to hear that because they've already decided for some 70 years that you don't even have any rights as an individual to even bring up the Second Amendment, that the Second Amendment is not a right of, of, of the people. It's not an individual right. They don't even have to listen to your Second Amendment argument. Of course, my court-appointed attorney already knew this, and he wasn't even going to bring it up. Joseph Dooley was his name. And Joe Dooley wasn't even about to even discuss this. We weren't even going to have this discussion. You know, or, you know he, and, and, and I can understand his perspective on that. To just you know, play devil's advocate, I can understand because as attorneys, they're supposed to know how the game is played in court. And if you bring up anything that makes the court look bad, they're going to be on his butt. And so they aren't going to, you know, he's not willing to do that and go out, you know, on a limb for me. But I did present papers through my sister-in-law that, that, you know, documented that collective rights theory, which says that only this, that somehow the Second Amendment has been twisted into only a right of the state to keep and bear arms, is just a complete fraud. And it took 70 years of this fraud for it finally to be addressed in DC v. Heller in 2008 in the Supreme Court. And when the Supreme Court did finally admit that all this is a lie and a fraud, they did nothing. Nothing to undo all the wrongs and damages that have been done to everyone in the meantime. They just turned their back entirely on
2: that. Not even, uh, oops, we're sorry.
1: No, not even, no, what they did, I think it's in footnote 23 on there that says, well, you know, uh, yeah, we may have made a few mistakes, but those judges, you know, who did all that, well, you know, they're good old boys and we love them still. And so I throw this up to, to the judge in my case, Gordon J. Quist, here in the uh, Western District of Michigan, and uh, he, refuses to, he refuses to address the matter. Matter of fact, he even denied my appeals on this, even though the Supreme Court basically uh, says in, in, in uh, case law that he cited that he really does have to give me an appeal uh, to address this. He refuses to do so. He doesn't want to be the guy that ends up bringing up, you know, springing the can of worms here. He doesn't want to be, you know, a, a non team player for the commies who are trying to just, dis- who are destroying the Bill of Rights. Okay, he wants to be seen as one of those good old boys, you know, who deserves his pension. And or whatever they get from the Supreme Court. They used to get, you know, until they die, until they're too senile to walk or whatever, until the hookers don't find them attractive anymore. I'm not sure what it is, how long they keep those Supreme Court, or those uh judges here in the federal courts, but I guess they keep them until they finally have to preserve them in formaldehyde or something. So you they...
0: Huh? Dude, we just got a question from the chat room. You yeah. take question? Sure. All right, uh... The question is, what about personal sovereignty? How would you reply to that? I what about
1: that, what about your own personal sovereignty?
0: Yeah, I guess it's in reference to your case. You know, uh, if you, I'm not sure if that's the question, but. But, well, um,
1: I did look into some sovereignty issues as a paralegal uh, while I was uh, abducted. And I had a really, really hard time, um, finding places where they were getting much ground. Um, and not that I don't feel that they have good, good standing and good arguments, uh, but just like the Second Amendment issue, um, it's hard to find a place where you can, you know, get, get legal traction, I guess you would say, and, and move forward. I mean, even though those people won D.C. v. Heller, nobody got anything as far as Second Amendment rights restored. I mean, none of the laws were overturned. And just as, as you look at sovereignty issues and you want to, and I can't say I'm the expert on that uh, by far, but, but even if you wanted to say that you have uh, superior rights, um, the state's just not going to honor that. You know, they, they have a, a monopoly on power, and power comes from the muzzle of a gun, they're willing to kill, and you're not. And so who really has the power? And you know, even though you may have good law behind you and you may have you know historical precedent, you know you know in aCEs, it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, the courts are uh, tyrannical and uh, they have you know legions of officers willing to eat out our substance and we have legions of idiots out here who are willing to pay them that tribute so they can be agents to eat out our substance and and kill us. And um, that's where we're at. I I mean, I think they have some good arguments, but I I wish I could say I knew more, uh, maybe something more specific.
2: Can you touch? Sorry about that. Go ahead. I I just wanted to touch based on jury nullification here is that something oh. that that you've also found some familiarity with there's a book called we the jury uh, yep. that addresses jury nullification could you kind of uh, give I, some background on that
1: well i can't say i'm familiar with that particular uh thing but i'm familiar with feja the fully informed jury association i you know i love feja uh <laughs> the whole idea behind that and um you know I, I totally support that and I, I do believe there's a lot to be said for that but unfortunately i think the all the folks they brought in in the grand jury in my case were hen-pecked retards and idiots um and they and same thing for uh, what would have been picked for you know my my uh, jury in, in the trial they would have uh, done the same thing it would you know the the general the public at large is is brainwashed by the media and they do not know they are entitled to judge the law and they are basically just spoon-fed what to believe and then then they just nod their heads like lemmings all all in a row and they just you know they do what they're told and the judge says you have to find them guilty if such and such is the facts and then the judge says the facts are this and so what's the jury going to do nod their heads yes they must be guilty And they don't even think that the Second Amendment says something and you're not allowed to bring up the Second Amendment. You're not allowed to, you know, bring up anything about the history, you know, or what, what the original intent is. You know, you're not, I mean, so much of your, your defense when you're bringing up a constitutional issue, which I did and I preserved that, you know, from my own, from my own court proceedings, I preserved a Second Amendment argument, which I'll tell you is very, very rare. I had to actually bring it up myself by the time we actually got, Move forward. I'd complain enough about my attorneys that the judge actually let me personally bring up an issue that my attorneys would not bring, and I preserved a Second Amendment argument But for, for my appeals, but not that they would listen to it, because at that time, collective rights theory was still the, the law of the land while my appeals were going on, and by the time it came along, again, the judge, once the judge got his nose bloodied by Heller, He wasn't going to deal with it. He was going to simply deny, 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 deny. He didn't care how tyrannical he had to be. He was not going to be the next guy on the list to bring up a Second Amendment case and deal with anything. He was not going to do that. He was not going to stand up for the Bill of Rights or the rights of the people at all. He was going to do everything he could, lie, duck, steal, whatever he had to do to avoid doing the right thing for the people. He's just a tyrannical piece of, you know, doo-doo. So I'm not sure how I answered your question there.
2: I think you touched on it real well, and we'll try and get a link up for, uh, for that book, We the, we the Jury. Uh, jury nullification is probably one of the most important things about trying to get the justice system back on its feet. And the Supreme Court, as I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, I'm just a historian, uh, the Supreme Court did admit, at least at some point, that jury nullification is the law of the land, Mm-hmm. Uh, James was mentioned that the, there's a newspaper article, one of our most popular articles was talking about a guy. Can you go on to that, James? Are you there, James?
0: Yeah, I'm here. Uh, there's a blog somewhere out there, uh, and it was posted by Mark Lar, our co host out there. In fact, uh, Mark Marklar, you're next with a question, if you're ready. Uh, talking about a, a, a disabled veteran who got caught with some pot. And he won the case for jury nullification. And, uh, you know, it's huge. And it's most, one of the most popular uh, blogs on the site. All right, Mark, why don't you jump in there on that one?
3: Oh, well, uh, yeah, I, I really don't know what I can say there, except that uh, uh, I, I would... Uh, uh Go ahead and agree with Terry on the uh, fact that jury nullification is a, an extremely important issue. Uh, probably one of the most underserved issues uh, of our times, uh, with all of the um, things that we talk about uh, when it comes to uh, Wall Street and other legal th- legal theories and this and that. Um, you know, and really. Uh, Nullification uh, has a very noble history, uh, in that, uh, for instance, a lot of the Jim Crow laws uh, were, over, were originally overturned, uh, or not really overturned, but they stopped getting prosecuted. The prosecutors were no longer uh, so much willing to uh, prosecute under some of these Jim Crow laws of the South. Uh, simply because juries would nullify and uh, refuse to uh, convict under those laws.
0: You know, we, uh, we were going to talk about the MIAC document, too. You know, you got to wonder, uh, David, do you think that uh, you were a target being because you were a veteran? Does that give an extra priority, do you think, to these spooks out there hunting down uh, all these uh, American terrorists?
1: Absolutely, they hyped that, Um, and uh, the uh, BATF agent, his name was Mark Samir, S-E-M-E-A-R, and uh, Mark Samir...
0: Oh, I love it that you're naming names. Keep it up, buddy.
1: Yeah, I I love to do that, too, because people need to know who the enemy is. Uh, Mark Samir documented in an affidavit to... Uh, the the uh, magistrate judge when he was looking for a uh, uh, an arrest warrant for me he uh, he documented that he was one of the investigators at the um, Pentagon and um, so you know what happened at the Pentagon right on 9 11 right no airplane hit the Pentagon okay so he's uh, basically documenting as part of his credentials that you know he was an investigator at the Pentagon, so you know the people they brought to bear against me. Okay, they brought all their best liars, their best fraudsters, and you know, their best good old boy team players who would tell whatever tale they wanted to tell. And of course, that's why he was more than happy to take whatever lies he could get from informants and not care that they were lies that any rational person would just say, what are you kidding me? You know, he he would write that garbage up, and then and uh, take it to the to the uh, uh, judge, and along with that, of course, you know he's playing that current you know that mentality of uh, just like what's in the Mayak report that uh, veterans are a threat, and so he uh, investigated me and documents in his affidavit that I'm a military veteran, special forces, and. That this is something they, you know, really need to be concerned about. That makes me, you know, all the more, you know, problematic that they have to uh, to go after me. So, so that's also in the uh, in their in their documents that uh, you know they consider military people to be a threat. And I, I find that really uh, repugnant to everything that um, America stands for and people who are willing to stand up and defend this country you know, volunteer, I mean, I was a volunteer, you know, at a very unpopular time, you know, post-Vietnam, you know, there was so much hatred of the military and the government from Vietnam that for me to volunteer then, I took a lot of crap for that, and I lost my girlfriend over it, you know, I lost, I went through a lot of grief over, over you know, taking that path, and uh you know for them to come back then and then repudiate me because I'm a military veteran as if I'm somehow somebody extra threatening now to the to the to the integrity of America you know that somehow my judgment is now questionable because I was a, a military veteran that somehow I am no longer trustworthy because I'm a veteran is really repugnant to uh any any common sense. I mean, other other people, I mean, take that to the Veterans of Foreign Wars Hall and tell that to them, that all of you are now considered suspect because you served honorably, that you got an honorable discharge, that you served the country, and now we hold you in contempt for that. Because that's exactly what Mark Samir did to me in those court documents. Instead of saying, well, you know, maybe we should question this. Is really Somerville really, you know, a bad guy? Because look, he has all this good history. You know, he's, he's, you know, he, he's got his bachelor's degree. You know, he's, he's regrettably paid his taxes. You know, he's been, he's, you know, been a good citizen all his time. He served his country honorably. But now we're going to hold that stuff against him. Now he's a bad guy because he served his country honorably. How does I'm that going- work?
0: You know what, David, Uh, it really is just the lowest point in American uh, history when a veteran is is put on a target list before being a veteran. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it doesn't get any more, I mean, but the ridiculousness does not stop there. If you have a map in your car, if you take pictures of scenic uh, places in the United States, you're a terrorist, not potential terrorist. I mean, if you're just doing what Americans do, you're now on the government's list for whatever reason. It doesn't stop. Hey, uh, would you uh, give us a quick fill-in about the MIAC document for many people out there that haven't heard about it? This is about a year-old story out of Missouri. Do
1: you want me to tell you about the MIAC document?
0: Yeah, would you uh, tell our, our listeners what you uh, recall about it?
1: Well, what I recall about it is uh, this was the uh, their fusion center. Uh, they're um, telling us about uh, all the people who are... Uh, considered to be a threat to the uh, security of of uh, America. Uh, people that should be uh, considered suspect. I think they had a whole bunch of different kind of people on that list. People who carry the Constitution, people who are uh, you know who, who bring up the Constitution, people who you know question uh, any government authority, people who you know stand, who, who are standing up for their rights uh you know and anybody who's considered uh you know to be a questioning authority in any way basically ended up on in that uh, report as as being a uh, basically suspected uh terrorists is is what they i think they uh, ultimately came up with in that document so they they really went across the board and and attacked a lot of people in that document I think I have it on my computer desktop here. I should probably reread that again.
0: Yeah, isn't it? I mean, you know, we can't remind people enough about this. You know, every time uh, I see a support your, our troop sticker and I have an opportunity to talk to one of our sheeple with their little Chinese support our troop sticker, I tell them about that. I said, you know, because people are coming back from the war that they're an automatic terrorist list now? They go, oh, really? Yeah, that's the truth. All right, Terry Bain, what do you got to jump in there with?
2: Uh, I just really, uh, we'll try and hopefully we can get some links up on some of these different topics the documentation that we were touching base on I, I, I'd just like to say from the Vietnam vets that I knew uh, the one thing that they really seemed to more than anything else uh, somebody needs to tell them welcome home and I keep thinking back to Scott Olstead, uh who was the marine veteran shot in the head uh, and, in uh, Oakland, that, that triggered off the first port shutdown, uh, kind of led the second port shutdown to try to get the violence shut down and the lawlessness shut down. Uh, again, the Veterans for Peace seems to have been targeted during that time. Um, I, I'd just like to say, personally, to, to a veteran,
3: welcome home. I do have a question uh, I'm wondering David uh, uh, in regards to this uh, judge and uh, his uh, essential dismissal of your uh, second amendment arguments um, what I'm wondering is is did you ever look into actually uh, filing uh, some kind of a judicial misconduct complaint or have you maybe found that it's simply so endemic uh, this sort of behavior that, uh, that it simply uh, uh, wouldn't be taken seriously? Or
1: Well, as judicial misconduct complaints goes, I filed a bunch of them. I went after the magistrate judge who fraudulently claims that he issued a, a, a valid search warrant. I went after uh, Gordon Quist for uh, having ordered... Uh, search warrant, whatever bogus search warrants that were ex- that supposedly existed, uh, to be, uh, produced. And then, uh, subsequently he allowed, uh, these other court officers and other court staff to not produce it for like 10 months. They just denied, ignored his court order. So basically they were all in contempt of his order. And then the day after my opportunity to file an appeal, they found this document supposedly they doctored one up so of course they you know you know went to the day after i had any opportunity to actually uh, use it in my uh, appeals and show the fraud uh i i filed uh misconduct charges against it of course extensive complaints against that magistrate judge and documented i mean in detail i got i you know went after documents and documents and documents i got You know, documents with signatures, original documents. I mean, I I know there's multiple original fraudulent documents issued. I went right. I mean, I nailed them hard. And I documented a bunch of it. I sent complaints to D.C. I sent complaints to judges in the Sixth Circuit, to individual circuit court judges. I documented uh, attacks on me and misconduct at various points in time. Uh, all through my proceedings with these people, my, my court, uh, dockets are loaded with my complaints against the judges. And I'll tell you, at times I think it, uh, it injured their ego because they were just busted and they couldn't do anything about it. And there was one point in time when I got thrown in the hole. Uh, in prison for doing that, for uh, going after one of the judges, um, you know too bad i you know you're busted, what a shame you know, and so their retaliation was you know just you know you know teach this guy a lesson, so uh, they did what they could there, you know to torture me for a while um, basically you know i i did not I did not leave the you know judicial misconduct complaints out of the loop at all. But, again, you know, the people you're appealing to are other judges, and it's all one good old boys club. And when you are considered to be a militia person, you know, they that's instant death. You're not right. dead anywhere. So, so
3: what's the uh, modus operandi there? Do they uh, simply disappear that stuff down a uh, black hole of... Uh of uh, nothingness, or or did they at least send you some letter with some uh, spurious uh, legal justification as to why they're not going to pursue uh, <laughs> anything in regards to that? Or
1: right, you're right. They almost to a fault. To I mean, almost 99 percent of the time, absolutely denied, ignored, even having this stuff filed. They, they did everything. I mean, I really had to, to track down I and mean, pursue the Sixth Circuit in some complaints, thinking, well, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the Court of Appeals will be some decent folks. Maybe they're not as dishonest and corrupt as the Western District of Michigan is. Here in this federal building, they're a bunch of corrupt scum. These people are just viciously corrupt. So I thought, well, okay, maybe, maybe, they're, not, you know, maybe they're not all that way in the Sixth Circuit. I found it otherwise that they pretty much are. I got very little in the way of even acknowledgment that complaints were filed. And ultimately what they do is say, well, your complaints get forwarded to another commission, and ultimately this commission decides what they're going to do, and you will never know what they decide. That whatever they come up with for discipline or resolution of the matter, you're never going to know. It's not going to be something that you're going to be a party to whatever they, whatever they come up with. So I can file this stuff and put it on the record that there is judicial misconduct, and I can document it at length. And boy, I did. I mean, I documented stuff, I mean, tooth and nail. Wow,
3: well, that's, that's, that's just amazing that the, uh, that the official, uh, uh, that the official uh, thing would be that you're, you, you, know, you can complain, but you'll never know what we decide.
1: <laughs> right, and it goes to other people that you don't even have. You know, you don't get to, you don't get to know. It's uh, the what do they call that? There's a, it's another group of people. Well, it's some administrative body. It's it's if you look in the court rules, you'll see it in there. Um, they they talk about them, and I can't say it's right on the top tip of my tongue right now. But basically, there you know, there's a, a a different group of administrators in each court of appeals that uh that deals with that and they handle that and like I say you will never know if or what they ever do about your complaints. So yeah, but I did that. And I think it did I did I think it did have some impact a couple of times. I do. Um because some of the stuff I put out was just so damning that I, I can't imagine that you know any anybody with any conscience anybody with any kind of concern about what's on the public record would probably just be appalled at what's going on the record and you know i mean if anybody you know i mean the only thing that judges really lay claim to is 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 this famous you know one liner they have that's public confidence in judicial proceedings and when you can just utterly eviscerate documentedly public confidence in anything that they are doing up there when you can document that these people have subverted the Bill of Rights for 70 years when you can document that they are willfully subverting your rights and committing fraud as regards the facts as regards you know compliance with Supreme Court rulings as as regards you know court orders when, when you can document that court staff are corrupt when you can document that the judges are corrupt you know at some point, you know, it 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 hits home. At some point, they've got to feel really embarrassed that this stuff is out there. I mean, it can't. You know, I mean, I know that there's like next to nobody out there in the world who gives a rat's ripe rump about my case, okay? But the stuff is out there, and it's not. We dying. do.
0: We do. That's why we're asking, David. There are <laughs> people out there, man.
1: <laughs> but you know, I mean, ultimately, you know. It's only there for the for the very 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 few people, and it, it's just like it's like a mouse squeak, you know, in in the roar of the crowd. It's it's next to nothing. that's ever going to be heard, but boy, is it sure damning. And I've had so many people tell me, you know, write a book about this. I got one woman who's very well connected to a lot of people who's trying to write the book for me right now. And really wants me to do this, and probably very shortly I will. I've got about thirty boxes, thirty cartons of legal material from litigation with these guys, and this is a lot of documents from many, many thousands of pages. Of who, will play you, who will play you in the movie, David?
0: <laughs> who
1: is going to play me in the movie?
0: <laughs> well, oh, I've uh, Donna in the chat room said you are a ninja. Can you tell us about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, Donna's, Donna's been a big fan of mine. Donna gets a nice pat on the back for that. I really yeah, appreciate rocks. that. Thanks.
0: She is uh, number one out there uh, fighting this. Uh, her sight's defiant for you. Hey, do you guys, you know, speaking of uh, political prisoners, what is going on with this July 4th patriot, Charles Dreyer? Now, uh, we have some people that have joined up around these social networks that are, are putting out both sides of points of view on this guy, uh, that he was a Fed informant from the beginning, and then he got himself stuck, and they, you know they sacrificed him to the whole cause. And other people are saying he was entrapped from the beginning. Do you know anything about this case and about this guy?
1: I have never heard anything about it, but I know from being close, you know, in my own case, and, you know, being up close and personal with many of the informant things and how the feds do deals, the feds hold informants in ultimate contempt. And the feds dislike informants as much as you like squashing them. Right.
0: yeah, you know, that's why I'm really torn about this, because, you know... Uh, Basically, people are saying, you've got to pick one side on this case. And I'm saying, I, I don't think I'm ever going to know the truth about it. You know, these feds, they can really uh, put together a tale. You know, you can't figure out what's up and what's down anymore. Uh, this guy, uh, with his handle on YouTube was called July 4th Patriot. And he used to come on at first with his face covered and it kind of looked, you know, intimidating militia type. You know, the, the fake media militia type you would see on TV, you know. And a lot of people say, well, there's your evidence right there. You know, uh, in fact, Mike Rivero said, that's enough reason to say that he's a fed. He's trying to be intimidating and blah, 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 incite violence. Uh, but, uh, the more and more I look at it, I think this guy got railroaded every which way but loose because, you know, uh, it started off that they're investigating him over YouTube about making, you know, uh, threats in the government. And the next thing you know, all of a sudden a family member shows up and says that they raped his little child. And now that's what he's in prison for, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. If you haven't looked into it, look into it. Uh, you know everybody out there should look at this case because it is just the most bizarre thing ever. You know it just starts on YouTube, and there's a lot of crazies on YouTube, and there's a lot of feds on YouTube. I mean, I think they have you spinning spinning your wheels all day, arguing back and forth about things that really don't matter, like this case. You know, because I mean, in the real grand scheme of things, this poor guy got screwed, but people are getting screwed every hour. You know, it doesn't just stop right after his story. Yep, uh, Terry or Mark, do you guys know anything about the July Fourth Patriot?
3: Uh, no, I heard, I heard, I've heard some mention of the name, uh, I think I know who you're talking about now that you describe the, uh, his YouTube stuff, I think I know exactly who you're talking about, but I can't be sure about that, and yeah, I, was, I can't was, say I really read into it.
0: Yeah, you know, he, uh, decided to mask himself at one point, and I'm not sure why, I think it's because they're, people already identified him, you know, tracking his IP or whatever, you know, and, uh... He was even on the Alex Jones show for a while, uh, a couple uh, spots, and they're talking about uh, infiltration in the militia and what was going on, and, and you know, and being railroaded by the FBI, you know, having them come over, and you know, they even he even said people came up to him and said, you know, like, hey, I'm with you, man, let's go get some grenades, you know, you know, just so really obvious uh, uh, provocateurs, man. Uh, was he cool. uh,
3: was he kind of like uh, bald with a shaved head? With uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, and you wear the you wear the black uh, kind of uh, kind of modern combat jacket kind of thing.
0: Yes, he was the evil marker. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, back to you, Terry. I think I guess we're uh, running out of time here. Uh, we'll round it yeah, up. We got,
2: looks like we've got a, about three minutes to the hour. I, I just wanted to thank you for being with us, David. And hopefully, we can get some of the links to the things you were talking about that's been documented. So. So we get a chance to get this stuff out where people can see it. Uh, it's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to see it in a legal document. So we'd really like to work with you to see if we can get some of those links up here in the next couple of days. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, thanks for standing, David. And hopefully you'll stay with the Occupy moment. We're, uh, we're, the, we're nonviolent. Hopefully we can stop ever needing uh, any kind of violence. So far, the violence seems to be directed more at us than, uh, and that's regrettable, but probably historically expected. Uh, anything else from you guys?
0: I just wanted to add a couple of plugs out there. you Be looking soon on Amazon.com for David Somerville's book. Mm-hmm. We will, Occupy America Social Network, uh, we're involved with, uh, 12160 is our pals over there. Uh, you know, I mentioned def- uh, Donna's site, uh, Defiant for You. It's a good uh, site to learn more about political prisoners. And honestly, we really didn't get enough on it, the political prisoners. I mean, there's so many of them out there. And now they're, the new newest uh, version of political prisoners is the whistleblower. The Obama administration is just destroying everybody that's trying to come forward and do the right thing for America. I well, want to thank... He, uh, he
3: did promise transparent government, so...
0: It, yeah. <laughs> in double speak it's exactly what it is. Yeah. All right, I want to thank uh Bradley Menford, uh, Sweet D down in the chat. Uh everybody else that turned out for our show. Troy, he's got a web uh, a group on 12160 uh, called the No Confidence Party. Check that out. We'll be back next week. We're hoping going we'll to be having uh some guests to talk about uh the uh fake black block up in Canada and various other uh protest locations. Think hey, Bradley, you can wrap it up. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, David. Thank you.